Hey there, this is the Beeb, and this is an ad. But don't turn the channel. I just wanted to let you know about my new podcast, the Finding Your Way podcast with me, the Beeb, the newest podcast production from Unfiltered Studios. If you need some encouraging words, thoughtful insight, or maybe you just need a serious break from your not-so-serious job. We could all use something like that in our lives, am I right? There are a million lighthearted comedic and murder mystery podcasts out there, but how many podcasts you got in your queue that will give you a little help in life that might make you think and see things from a different angle? Well, if that is you, check out the podcast. Once again, that is the Finding Your Way podcast with me, The Beat, the newest podcast from Unfiltered Studio. Uh, all right, Keb, I'm done with this. I'll see myself out. Podcasting from the heart of Jacksonville, Florida, Florida. it's Keb Keb. Unfiltered, a podcast about truth, justice, and what's going to offend the maximum amount of people with the minimum amount of effort. You know, the American way. That's the American way. Parental discretion is heavily advised. Your parents might learn something. Now, here's your host. The Keb. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Um, as always, my name is The Keb. Got a great guest this week. Really great guest. Been looking forward to this for a while. My guest this week has rightfully been called one of America's smartest comics. Whether it's a story about dining with a vegetarian or successfully fighting a parking ticket, he's a master storyteller and shows you that there's hilarity ordinary if you approach life with a comedic warp. I've been telling you guys that for a while. Uh, job interviews, serving on a New York City criminal jury. How about the Ten Commandments? I'm interested for that. Uh, for just about anything he's experienced, uh, he has a hilarious story at the ready. He has been profiled in the New York Times and has headline shows on five continents. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Sean Eli. Thank you for joining us, Sean. I looked forward to disappointing your listeners. <laughs> I disappoint them every week. You know, they're uh, uh, they're used to the disappointment. Well, I look uh, forward to out disappointing you. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you, you coming on. Uh, always good to talk to a fellow comic. And But how did you get into comedy? A woman on a date talked me into trying it. <laughs> like, I, like at an open mic or something? No, well... She told me, well, I'd been writing jokes for late night TV freelance, and okay. I guess she thought I was funny. She said, you should try stand-up, and I said, no. And she said, well, she had just taken a class. I should try the class. So I said, all right. Okay. And started performing, and six years later, stopped doing day work, and now I'm just a comic. What were you doing for your day work? I was a banker. Nice. For a big a old bank? bank or a bank. <laughs> <laughs> for a big old bank anchor for a bank big uh founded in 1923 i don't know if that's old or new okay D did i see somewhere that you went to the wharton school of business yes well i don't right. know if you saw it but i went there okay and and and, and correct me if i'm wrong that's the same place that a, 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 a former president went uh that is true and i won't say which former president neither will i uh, but uh, uh by cool. the way just to be clear, he was there long before me. Okay. Okay. Uh, you didn't go to his school, though. But the university he named after himself, that Correct. wasn't the university? No, I did not. Right. 
Right. Okay. What um, you've headlined shows all over the world, correct? Yes. Well, all over a whole bunch of countries, but okay. And what differences in perform is performing different countries? Do you have to learn a new language or or anything like that? Well, I have two friends who perform in other languages. I I don't. I speak English and barely passable French. My French isn't good enough for me to tell jokes in. Okay. But, so I've only. I would say I've only gone to English-speaking countries, but that's not true because I performed in Thailand in English in front of an audience that presumably understood English. Nice. Do you have to change like uh, like references or anything like that for you them know, to get it? Before my first overseas tour, which was to South Africa, I sat down and I looked at my material and I said, they'll get everything here. There's nothing here that's specifically American. I had one Craigslist reference. I asked. They said, oh, yeah, we know what Craigslist is. No problem. Turns out they know what it is, but they don't use it, so it didn't work as well. But right. it wasn't cultural references so much as cultural differences, I would say. Like I had a I have a story about people writing these braggy Christmas letters to family and friends. You know, okay. dear dear friends and family, we've had a great year, and then they just pile on a bunch of crap of bragging. <laughs> and it does well in the States. In South Africa, I just got blank stares and I said, What's going on? And they said, we don't brag about things here. It's not in our culture. That's an American thing. We don't, something good happens to us. We don't go telling everybody. We certainly don't take credit for things that other people did. So they just didn't quite understand the reference. Do you remember the first joke you ever wrote? First joke I ever wrote? Yeah. Uh, no, I remember the first joke um, I ever sold to late night TV. I remember the first joke I ever told on stage, but First joke I ever wrote, I was probably 10 years old. Well, who, who did you write for on Late Night TV? I've sold jokes for to Jay Leno, to Conan O'Brien, and Jimmy Fallon. And what was that like seeing your joke told on TV? Or was it told on TV, I guess? Yeah, the weird thing is, the first time I... I basically, the way it works is, you, it, it was a long time ago, you fax in jokes. And if they use one, you get paid. So okay. I've been faxing in jokes to Leno for a couple of weeks. And I recorded the show every night on my VCR to give you another dated reference. Sure. Uh, and one day I got home from my day job and I opened the mail and there was a check from, you know, with Jay Leno's signature on it. And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't remember seeing one of my jokes. You know, I wrote, you know, like half a dozen or a dozen a day. Sure. And so I said, okay, I remember the jokes he's told. I'll go back. And I looked through the pages that I'd faxed and I saw one joke and I'm like, Oh, he told that joke like three days ago. I didn't realize it was mine. Wow. That's pretty that's pretty cool. So Jay Leno and uh Conan. And Conan on NBC and Jimmy Fallon on the 1230 show. Okay. When you went up first, when your correct me if I'm wrong, your girlfriend bet you to get up there? It wasn't a girlfriend, it was actually just a first date. Uh, she didn't bet me, she just talked me into trying it. Okay. What what did you talk about there? Like I can remember the first I've done stand up. I can remember the first joke that I told that actually got, you know, laughs and brought me back. It was kind of like a good golf shot and uh, and brought me back. So I'm always interested to to hear what uh what others uh I'm not proud of the first joke I told. Okay. And I remember the first joke. I remember the routine was basically about that for about the first two minutes. Sure. But it wasn't it wasn't who I wanted to be. It okay. was just what I thought would be funny. Because when I started in stand-up, I knew how to write jokes. I recognized that I wasn't going to be good at performing them. So I wanted something I could do pretty deadpan 
that would at least get a laugh without much energy in performing. So I stepped sure. on stage and I said, hi, my name is Sean and I am a breastaholic. <laughs> and then it, it was two minutes about, you know, comparing breasts out, you know, men's obsession with breast to alcoholism. Right. Sort of in that, that vein. And, it, you know, it worked well, but it, I didn't want to be known as that comedian. Okay. Do you find yourself funny offstage? Yeah. You know, I, there are some comics who are hilarious on stage and offstage. They're just not funny. They're, sure. you know, they're, they're very contemplative and they write jokes and they perform them, but in their general life, they're not. I find if I have a gift and I can make people laugh and I'm clearly not proving it tonight because there's been nothing, almost nothing spontaneously <laughs> funny. But if I'm talking sure. to customer service on the phone and figure you probably, the average person spends five friggin' hours a week talking to customer service <laughs> on the phone. I think you spend five hours a week talking to customer service and two hours a week fixing your computer. And sure. so if you can make the customer service person laugh, you know, nobody's making them laugh. They're sitting at a computer with a headset 40 hours a week listening to people complain. If you can make them laugh, they're on your side. And if I'm in the drugstore, online in the drugstore, and I think of something funny, I am same thing. If I can make the person, you know, the cashier laugh, I brighten their day. Why not? I find that the funniest things happen when one is not trying. You know, uh, I was taught, I was a guest on another podcast and he asked me what my what my wife was watching. And I said, well, she's watching a show about the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And he goes, oh, really? What's that about? And I said, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. I just find that the, the funniest thing is when when I don't try, you could sit down and have a writing session and get, you know, together with a couple of comics, which I'm sure you do. And, and go through all that. But um, the funniest things just kind of happen in everyday life. And I think that's one of the plus things. Do you remember the days of carrying around like a notepad and writing down stuff that you see? I still, I mean, I still do. A lot of comics carry notebooks and a lot of comics put stuff sure. in their phone. Sure. I just have a piece of paper in my pocket. And if I think of something funny, I write it down. And when I get home, I throw it on my desk. And at some point it ends up in my computer. I'm mystified by the comics who carry around these big, thick notebooks full of ideas. And every once in a while, it's like, oh, my God, I left it in a taxi. So I, right. I just spoke to a comic a couple of weeks ago, this big, brilliant comic, big, thick notebook. And I'm like, do you have a backup? And he said, what do you mean? I'm like, what if you lose your notebook? And he said, I'd be devastated. I'm like, take out your phone and take a picture of every page. Sure. It's like, what a great idea. I'm like, how did you not think of that? Because sure. The last thing I ever want to do is lose a joke. I, I, what pisses me off is that I find that I think of like the best stuff, like when I'm trying to go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. At night. And, and there, there's been studies that say that the brain is really creative when you're trying to go to sleep. And, you know, that's why I like having the phone close because you can bring up your notes uh, in there and just write down kind of brain story, what you're thinking. And I'm the king of, oh, I'll finish that later, you know? And then I forgot the whole premise of the damn thing that I was thinking about. I have something similar. It's not trying to fall asleep. I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and I have pe paper and pen neck right next to my bed. And a lot of times my thought is, oh, it's such a vivid memory. I'll remember it. I'm not going to make the effort to turn on a light and reach for something. I'm just exhausted. And of course, the next morning, half the time, I don't remember it. But when I do write it down, sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's just, gee, it might have been funny to somebody's asleep. Right. But, you know. Coca-Cola poured on the street. There's no joke there. You know? 
<laughs> have you uh, always been uh, clean carpet? Uh, yeah. When I took the class, one of the things the instructor said is, if you can be clean, it's a real benefit. There's no advantage to being a dirty comic. Sure. There are advantages to being a clean comic. Because I do shows at, at theaters and for houses of worship and even you know for senior citizens groups. And the theater shows, one of the selling points is that, you know, older people or people who, you know, don't want to hear dirty comedy can come to the show because if they didn't care, they'd be at a comedy club. So do you do a lot of churches and stuff? I do. I'm Jewish. I do synagogues. Synagogues okay. more than churches. And I think that's really not so much because I'm Jewish, but because of the financial differences between a church and a synagogue, because a synagogue doesn't pass a collection plate. Right. So they've got to do fundraisers one way or another. So if they can have a comedy show fundraiser, they do it. Church, if they pass a bucket every Sunday that gets filled with cash, there's less of a need. But also, sure. I think partly culturally, you know, Jews, comedies in our nature, we're storytelling people. Okay. What's your favorite story to tell? That's a hard question. Usually the most recent one I wrote. <laughs> okay. So do you, do you have one you could share with us? They're usually too long. Usually they're like five to seven minutes. So, okay. But, okay. you know, you mentioned at the beginning that I have a story about fighting a, a, uh, sorry, serving on a New York City criminal jury. Sure. And that I can tell you the problem with that. And the reason I stopped telling it is it has a cultural reference that people, you know, under 50 don't seem to get. And it okay. starts by, you know, serving. I said I served on a criminal jury in the Bronx which is like being trapped on Gilligan's Island with 11 Gilligans, all of whom okay. think they're the professor. Okay. And, and it's a parallel between Gilligan's Island and, and jury duty. And the sure. problem is people don't remember Gilligan's Island or never saw it. So I can't tell a joke anymore. Sure. Sure. That was on reruns when I was a kid. Right. You know, me but too. I, but, but we probably, there weren't a lot of reruns to watch when we were, we were kids. So everybody saw yeah. the same shows. Sure, sure. I, I think I would argue the fact that I have seen, I'm 47 years old. I've probably seen every episode of Gilligan's Island. Right. You know, um, I was just talking to my older brother about J.J. Walker, and he didn't know who it was. And I'm like, from the show Good Times, right. I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. And wow. so I explained the premise. He said, no, I'm pretty sure I never saw it. Wow. Who doesn't know Good Times, man? Somebody didn't watch enough TV as a kid, I guess. Yeah. So, so what do you do? I'm sure that, you know, clean comic, blue comic, whatever. Um, we all have faced where the, a show doesn't go the way that we want it to. What, what, what is, how do you attack a show that's not going well? You know, it's going to sound braggy. It's been a long time since I've had a bad night in front of an audience. Okay. You know, as you get better, you have more confidence and that makes a difference and your material gets better. Sure. But I think really you go up and you let them know, I know what I'm doing here. So you can all feel comfortable having me in the driver's seat. Right. But I've done shows like if, if I do a synagogue show, usually it's a Saturday night, but I did it. I did a show for a, a synagogue men's club and it was, you know, their meetings are at like 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and everybody's tired. It's Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and, and it wasn't going that well. And people laugh a lot less at 10 o'clock in the morning. Than they do 10 sure. o'clock at night. I don't know why, but just the way it is. So at one point it wasn't going that well. I looked at him and I just said, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning for me too. Right. And, yeah. and that maybe got, they're not awake yet. Maybe they haven't yeah. had their fruit loops. 
But even three o'clock versus eight o'clock makes a difference. Sure. By the way, it wasn't Fruit Loops. Is it Synagogue Men's Club? Bagels and cream cheese. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Um, have you have you ever done a uh, like a college, but like not like uh, not like their theater or anything, but like like a cafeteria or some some stupid set like that? I haven't, and I didn't get started till I was forty. And okay. colleges tend to want people closer to college student age. Sure, I've not. I've done a couple of college gigs, but I've never searched out the college market because, I mean, you probably know how this works. Your listeners probably don't. There's an established way that comedians get booked at colleges. Yep. You essentially have to pay to audition and Basically. go to a big conference. They have a few every year uh, called NACA. I think it's National Association of Campus Activities or something. Right. You, you basically have to hire a college agent and pay them to represent you so you can go audition at NACA. And I didn't see any point in doing it because I thought the chances that I would get hired are pretty slim. Right. It um, It sucks, by the way. You know, it, it's kind of like, look, man, in a half hour, this is going to be done, you know, and um, you ever had this to where, let me ask you this first, before you have a big show, do you ever go to like an open mic to warm up or anything like that or try out new material? Um, I haven't been an open mic in a bunch of years and I don't know how it is in other places, but in New York or LA, an open mic night is only comedians. There's no regular right. audience there. Who's, who thinks, hey, for free, I can watch a free, you know, second-rate comedy show. It's right. only other comedians. They're usually not paying attention. And I find it, especially if you're not rude and filthy, um, it doesn't really give you an indication of whether a joke is very good. And right. I would say it's pretty standard in comedy that comics say, we really don't know if something's funny until we try it in front of an audience. Right. I've been lucky that I think I have a decent instinct for what works and what doesn't. So... I, I would just try stuff out at a show. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Do you, do you yank it or do you try it a couple times? Or I mean, I will try it a couple. Of, if it really doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, I'll put it aside. But also, I mean, I have a couple of things that I've tried here and there. Like if I'm in Vermont and I think of a joke about Vermont, I'll tell it in Vermont. And it occurred to me that I have five or six of these local stories and that be, is about to become a routine about, hey, I travel the country and I was in Vermont and this thing happened. I was in Ohio. This thing happened. I was in Texas. So I'll have one story that's a bunch of travel stuff all mixed together. Have you ever gotten down here to Florida? Uh, yes, about five years ago. Whereabouts? I don't remember. On the West Coast. Okay. Um, I did Tampa, couple, maybe? I, don't, I was in Tampa, but I don't think I did a show in Tampa. I did a couple of... Shows at comedy clubs, maybe Naples or Sarasota. Yeah, Naples, West Coast, so Sarasota. Um, yeah, so, and the typical comedian experience, Friday night, two shows, killed yeah. on the first show, late show, audience wasn't paying attention, they were all really drunk, much tougher audience. Right, right. Um, being in New York, you've done Caroline's and Gotham City and all that? Uh, Gotham Comedy Club, Caroline's, which just closed at the end of the year, uh, Broadway Comedy Club, a um, few others. But I, okay. I do more theater shows than comedy club shows. How are the uh, how are the hecklers up there? You know, people ask about heckling a lot. It doesn't happen that often. And here's something I and a few other comedians have discovered. If you're in a comedy club show and you're dressed a little better than the other comedians, if the other comedians are in like 
torn jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers and you're in nice jeans and boots and a polo shirt uh, and that's like the least i get dressed up sure they don't talk back to you it's like your management they leave you alone they, they'll heckle the the more sloppily more casually dressed people and i typically wear a button-down shirt and a sports jacket and very little problem with hecklers but in general it's not a problem when's the last time you went to a comedy show as a guest um that's a really good question gosh i can remember the last time i paid but that okay. was like 15 <laughs> years ago right. um oh this is bad uh i saw bill cosby about six or seven years ago how was that to... he wasn't good at all really he yeah he brought it was new jersey he brought his his grandchildren up on stage you know remember he used to do kids say the darndest things and he basically did crowd work he talked to his grandchildren on stage and he was really funny that was like his opening act for himself right and then he did about an hour and a half which wasn't good at all and then he had what, what i would say was a really good closing joke that he didn't close on and he did like one or two more jokes after that which were dumb and wow. then he said good night Wow. And then a couple of years later, we found out what a monster he was. Sure. Sure. Do you deal with small audiences any differently from large? I think you have to. Okay. Uh, if, if it's a large audience, you get, you know, the laughter echoes. You get a lot of laughter. Small audience, especially if it's a small audience in a big room, you have to deal with it differently. But a small audience in a small room, one of the best shows I ever had when I was starting out was three people it was a thursday night between christmas and new year's during a snowstorm and three people showed up and wow. we just there were like half a dozen comics and we basically sat on the edge of the stage and just talked to the audience we had a conversation yeah. with the audience because it was just material probably wouldn't have worked right. so the thing i don't like is when comics will come and it's a small audience and they'll be angry at the audience like you're yelling at the people who did show up right Right, and I remember talking right. to one comic in a show I was producing, and he was addressing the small audience about being a small audience. And I said, why did you remind them that, you know, you're making them think they did something wrong because they were the ones who showed up? And he said, well, it was the elephant in the room. I had to address it. And I'm like, you don't know that the five people who went on before you didn't also address it. Now you're making them feel stupid. <laughs> Make them feel special. They were the smart ones because they sure. came to the comedy show. Sure. Do you... I'm sure you get asked um, a lot of people. I get asked a lot of people, you know, um, hey, I, you know, I've always wanted to try stand up. You know, I've always wanted to do this. What do you what do you tell somebody that asks ask you that? Hey, you know, how'd you get started? Or, hey, I think I'm funny. I, I, I think I could do stand up. Well, people say I want to try to. I will say go right ahead. Just not tonight. <laughs> You're not getting a spot in my show. But right. if they say, I've always wanted to try it, I, I recommend if they're in a place where they can take a comedy class, it's a supportive environment. It makes it a lot easier to get started. And if not, write five minutes, go to an open mic night. You're probably going to stink. Nobody's going to listen to you. But if you survive it, you can go back the next week and, or the next night and try again. And people say, you know, I think I'm funny. I'm like, okay, you're funny. I have no reason to dispute it. Do you think it's a learned trait or do you think people will? You know, can it be a learned trait? Or oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, I got into a discussion with another comic about this, and he had the, the opposite point of view for most comedians. He said it's like anything else. Anybody can learn it if you put in the work. But okay. I think there's natural talent involved in everything. Sure. I mean, 
I could have, if I'd started playing golf at age three and played, you know, 10 hours a day, I still wouldn't have been Tiger Woods, but I'd probably right. be a pretty good golfer. Sure. Um, so what advice would you give somebody who wanted to be a comic? Um, are you prepared to suffer? <laughs> are you prepared to, to have a lot of bad nights where you go home and question your sanity and wonder if you're any good at anything and be angry at people for not laughing and having to go to open mic nights where it's a lot of 20 year old misogynists living in their parents' basement whose only material is about smoking pot, video games, and masturbation. If you can tolerate that, go right ahead. But sure. it's, it's a tough slog getting started. It's not like you go to school and you get the entry level job and they pay you and they train you and you work your way up. You're, you're really starting at the bottom and stand up. What, what's your, what, I know mine, but what, what is your favorite subject for material? Uh, you know, things that have happened to me or my parents. I have a lot of jokes about my parents. Okay. I, I have a ton about my kids, you know, and, you know, uh, I have a lot of jokes about your kids too. <laughs> And probably my wife as well, right? Oh, I have no jokes about your wife. I take her okay. very seriously. Okay. Um, so what we are talking about, people becoming comedians, what are the necessary skills? In your I have a sense of humor. Uh, that, that, that would be the biggest one. I would think. Um, willingness to be in front of an audience and, and willingness to fail. Because... Starting in comedy is very different from starting a lot of other things because sure. if you think about it, if you're a musician, you don't start when you're 20. You no. start when you're 5 or 10. And if you're terrible because everybody's terrible at everything when they start, people put up with it because you're a kid. They expect you to be bad. And your parents and friends are supportive. If you start stand-up comedy at 20 or 25 and your friends come to one of your first shows, they expect you to be good because they've seen right. comedians on TV. And you're not going to be. So it's it's a different starting out kind of issue. What about for those that um, and when you said earlier about open mics just being comics there that that, that that's everywhere, you know. I, I've I've been here. I've been in Atlanta. I mean that that's that's everywhere. And I don't think you can really get the good vibe of a joke. But what I do think is you can work on the way that you think that the timing of the joke or or the right. way it could go. And I think for some people. Um, like me, when I started, I had a really bad habit of pacing, you know, and, and, and that was more disruptive. Like it, it, I learned stage presence and things of that nature. How important do you think things like that are outside of that, being funny? I think that's very important. I mean, confidence and, and stage presence are important, but pacing can be good too. Chris Rock paces back and forth and it, sure. it works for him. I've tried to do it and it doesn't suit my personality. I'm probably more still than most people. I'm standing in one spot. I don't move my feet very much at all. And I probably okay. should do a little more of that. And also, if you're on a big theater stage, you know, you've got a 30 foot wide stage. You've got room to move around. And if you're talking to an audience member on one side of the stage, you can walk over and talk to them mm -hmm. and address them and, and walk back and walk to the other side. You can move around a little bit. Because I, I take the mic out of the stand. I don't there are some comics who leave the mic in the mic stand. Right. They're, they're motionless. They stay right in front of that. I right. at least want the freedom to move around a little bit more than that. I think that really depends on the size of the stage as well, taking the mic out or, or leaving it in, in, in the stand. Oh, yeah, but like at Greenwich Village Comedy Club in New York, the stage is like a four-foot square. 
So there's right. no point in taking the mic out of the stand because you can't go anywhere. I'm just more used to having the microphone in my hand. Sure. What's the seediest place that you've ever performed? Seediest place I've ever performed. Like the the, the worst, the sketchiest. Uh, there was a comedy club in New York that is no longer a dump, so I'm not going to mention their name, but <laughs> it was a it was a hole. And the con there's a comic who used to, Joe DeVito used to tell the story. Very, very funny comic, Joe DeVito used to tell the story. He said he threw up for every time he did a show for six months. And what finally cured him of throwing up is that the bathrooms were more disgusting than the throwing up. Wow. And, and but it's since changed hands and it's it's a lot cleaner. So. I've I've told this on on this program many times, but uh, I haven't told it to you, so I'm going to. I performed in a place in uh, downtown Jacksonville, Florida, that they found a meth lab. A meth lab in a meth lab in the basement, run by the same people who ran the comedy club. Uh, I I guess you know it was one of those joints that was like they ran comedy on mondays but then they did music on tuesdays and then they did improv on wednesday you know one of those joints and uh but they found yeah they found a uh a meth lab in the the place wound up closing down because of mismanagement or whatever probably they're selling more meth than booze and uh they found a met when they, they went and cleaned it out they found a, an old meth lab down there i think that would be great for the comedian you'd be like how'd your show go oh my god i blew up the place <laughs> it uh it, it was definitely uh definitely the butt of a joke you know down here for a while um between between the comics but um do you prefer older or younger audience i think most people prefer younger and here's why younger audiences laugh more you could do a show for 80-year-olds, and they'll tell you that a great time, but they don't laugh much. Younger audiences laugh more. Sure. So sure. You have, I think every year you get older, you laugh less. You look at a bunch of little kids playing, they're laughing all the time, and it doesn't matter what they're doing. Everything's funny to them. And right. by the time you're 50 or 60, I think life has beat the heck out of you, and you're less likely to laugh. Whereas, I mean, you ask somebody who's 60, when was the last time you were laughing so hard, you and your friend just fell on the floor and couldn't catch your breath laughing. Right. And you ask a 20 year old, they'd be like, uh, Thursday. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time you laughed so hard you cried? You know, uh, it's been a while, but, uh, I also hang around with funny people all the time. So that makes sure. It easy. Sure. Do you, do you find that you get immune to laughing at jokes? Yeah. It's much harder to make comedians laugh because sure. we, we, we see the premise. We, we probably at least half the time, see where the punchline is coming before the, they get to the punchline. On the other hand, there'll be comics who'll be watching other comics and say, oh my God, that's brilliant. And, and the audience, you know, if you're watching a comedian with a friend who's not a comedian, they'd be like, what's brilliant? And then when they get to the twist, then the, the audience is like, oh, that was great. But you're like, yeah, but I knew that 30 seconds ago. Sure. I, I used to feel bad when somebody would tell me a joke and I wouldn't laugh at it. And maybe it was funny, maybe it's not. And I, I would have this thing where i just said you know chuckle a little bit and be like that's funny you know but now i'm just like let me you know somebody will be like hey let me tell you a joke hang on i'm probably not going to laugh i mean I, yeah I, and audiences want to tell us jokes all the time sure and i i have a joke about not telling jokes to comedians right because that's not how it works i mean uh, after you have a, a great meal in a restaurant you, you don't go into the kitchen to make mac and cheese for the chef Right. right. That's not how it works. Right. And usually the problem is it's 
a joke we've heard before because we've heard yeah. a lot of jokes. Sure. And or something be, like it. Right. And it's going to be three minutes long with only one very obvious punchline at the end. And the right. jokes, 90% of the time, they're really filthy or racist. And we don't want to listen to them. So, yes, don't tell jokes to comedians. It's our job to tell you the jokes, not the other way around. We don't come to your office and do your job. Agreed. We don't come and cook the fries at McDonald's. Um, what? How, how do you structure a joke, personally? I don't know. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, I don't know where it comes from. I just sit down and write a joke. There's one joke that I had. Actually, the joke that starts by telling people not to tell jokes to comedians, which is really about my friend Mark and fighting my cell phone company. And I wrote that joke in the order it came to me and it skips back and forth between two premises. And when I first saw that, I thought that's a weird way to do it. It's really two separate jokes. I should split them up. But then I thought it's, it was stream of consciousness. That's how it occurred to me. And when I tell it, it works because it sounds like I'm just talking about something that happened to me, which I am. But going back and forth between the two premises really makes it work. And if you think you about get, it, that's how a sitcom is structured. Sure, sure. Well, do you follow, like, have you created your own formula? Do you follow the old, you know, I need a laugh break every 30 seconds? Or I try. I mean, there's a joke I have about taking my elderly father to the doctor. And it's got a couple of good punchlines at the end. And I'm like, I need more punchlines. It's like a minute and a half joke. And it didn't have enough laughs, even though the laughs were strong. So I said, okay, I've got to put stuff in the middle. That's funny. So I deliberately sat down and wrote jokes in the middle. Same thing with my closing joke, uh, which is about a traffic stop. I'm like, there's a great payoff in the end, but the middle doesn't have enough punchlines. I have to force myself to write. But usually I don't sit down and say, I need a punchline here. I need a punchline here. I just, I just write the jokes the way they occur to me. Do you write jokes as they come to you, or do you have any time that you sit down, shut the door, leave me alone, and that's what I'm doing right now? No, I, I, I tried that. It didn't work for me. There are some comics who are like, I have to write an hour a day, and some okay. comics write an hour a day and come up with you know utter crap most of the time. I only write a joke when something occurs to me. I write it down, and then there are times I'll just take it out and work on it. I mean, I have a, a big file on my computer full of you know, half finished jokes or jokes I haven't decided to try on stage yet, but I don't have a time. I sit down and write jokes except when I'm sleeping. Sure. Uh, Do you find that you write jokes more for what you think an audience will laugh at, or do you write it more for what you find funny? Well, I've got to find it funny or I'm not going to expect the audience. I think, I think if you're trying to write jokes, you think the audience will like that you don't like you're pandering. Sure. Yeah, I don't want to do that. But there are things I find funny that audiences don't find funny, and that doesn't work. But I can't think of anything. If I don't think it's funny, why would an audience think it's funny? There is a ton of stuff that I find funny that no audience finds funny. But I'm I'm a dark individual. Um, But I find that you you find one or the other. So you don't do you do from just talking to you this long. Is it, you probably talk a lot about yourself. That's kind of why people probably come to see you. They don't come to see you to talk about somebody else. But do you do any topical humor or anything like that? You know, I do zero political humor in the United States. And okay. when I started out, I wanted to be a political comedian. But I quickly realized even New York, where most of the people are, you know, leaning to one side, you're still going to piss off at least a third of the audience if you do political humor. And in the old sure. days, at least people would accept 
the premise that there's something weird about some of their beliefs and laugh. But now you make a joke that goes against somebody's political beliefs and they will not think it's funny. So I think it's a really bad business decision to do political comedy. That said, I was hired to open for a political guy once and I thought I've got to get the audience on my side. So I did joke. Well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, he's a humorist named Chad Prather and he does a lot of right wing comedy and basically started out by ranting and then his rants got attention and people said, oh, you should tour. So he started touring and the theater in Connecticut hired me to open for him. And I thought, well, I've got to get the audience on my side and they're there to see him. And I went out and I, I started with the Hillary joke. And then I said, it was right. I think it was right before or after the, the 2016 election. Okay. And then I said, you know, Chad will be out in about 20 minutes. I'm going to do 20 minutes of comedy material and an opener in this situation typically gets paid around $500 for 20 minutes. And I'm not complaining. It's great sure. work. And I appreciate it. But you would think that a guy, you know, $500 for 20 minutes is $1,500 an hour. Sure. You would think a guy making $1,500 an hour would be a Republican. But I think <laughs> it's perfectly rational that I should only have to work 20 minutes a night. And that makes me a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> and that got him on my side. And after that, I didn't have to do anything political. But I that joke wouldn't play in, say, uh, Miami. No, no, no. It's it's uh, it's a it's a little left unless you're opening for for somebody like that. But if well, I wouldn't do that for a regular audience. I would only do right. that for a political audience. Right. Overseas. So, I mean, touring overseas when Trump was president, people as soon as they heard I was an American, they wanted to know where I stood. So I definitely would open with a Trump joke. But okay. other than that, no, I, I don't see any benefit to doing political comedy. Plus, you got to rewrite your jokes all the time because sure. you do, I mean, I have one vague political joke about a Supreme Court decision, but you you know, you you write a joke about something, and three months later, it's not in the news anymore. I mean, sure. I've heard there's comics running around doing Monica Lewinsky jokes. I mean, how long ago was that? Yeah, uh, almost thirty years. Yeah, almost. What about religious humor? Um. I do some jokes about religion, but basically making fun of my own. So you can sort of get away with it. But it's not making fun of real intrinsic beliefs. It's not, right. hey, your religion is stupid for these reasons. It's more silly stuff. Right. Okay. Is there, other than politics, is there anything else that you stay away from? You know, if you would ask me five years ago, is there anything you wouldn't write jokes about? I would have said... I wouldn't write jokes about suicide because I can't think of anything funny about suicide and it's something we should take seriously. And then a suicide joke occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I haven't told it much. I've probably forgotten it already, but it was a decent joke. And at some point I'll dig it out again uh, because the joke wasn't making fun of victims. Right. It, is anything off limits? I, don't, I mean, Mel Brooks made a career out of making fun of the Holocaust, so sure. Nazis. So I would say nothing is off limits if you do it right. However, there are audience. I would not go to a cancer charity and do jokes about cancer, right? Because it's not the joke that offends them. The topic will bother them because sometimes you could be making fun of something, and people who think that the thing you're making fun of is bad don't like the joke because you're reminding them of the thing that is bad. Sure. I mean, some people are along the lines of the, of the you know uh, Daniel Tosh rule, where there's there the, nothing's off limits, or 
you know, the Andy Kaufman rule to where he didn't really care if you laughed or not. He just wanted you to go through an experience, love him, hate him, whatever. You know, he wanted you to go through experience. And then you, you get the, some people like, like, uh, like the guy that I started with, who, who I still talk to, who is just like, look, if it makes people laugh, then it's good. You know, if it doesn't make people laugh, then maybe you should move on. Well, I mean, I'd certainly agree with that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's good, but your job is to make people laugh. Your job is right. to make people think. Your job isn't to make people question your beliefs. Your job isn't to rile up the crowd. Your job is to give them a good time. Sure. And I mean, it's my job to tell jokes. That said, I was at a private party a few years ago for a very rich person. And rich, like, you could fit my house into his living room, and he had more than one living room. And it's like one of these houses where you go in, and there's just rooms off of rooms off of rooms. And I go into a room, and he's got enough couches to seat about 30 people. And it's, it's his birthday party, and his friends are there. And it's my job to entertain. And I try to do, do material. And they didn't want to sit and listen to a comedian. They want to interact with a comedian. And they're making jokes about each other. And they're interrupting. And I'm like, it occurred to me, my job here is just to make sure they have fun. Whether sure. they have fun because of me or not because of me makes no difference. My job at this private party, unlike a comedy show, is I'm the facilitator of fun. Yep. And if I can interact with the audience or they interact with each other, as long as they're laughing for 45 minutes, it doesn't matter what they're laughing at. I got paid to make people laugh, whether you know it was me or them. And so once I stepped back from that response to the responsibility of me being funny, it made that a lot easier. But most of the time, I think my job is it's my job with my words to make the audience laugh. How do you feel about crowd work? Um. I like it to some extent, just, just in case your audience doesn't know. Crowd work is when the comedian is directly talking to the audience, yeah. interacting. Hi, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Is that your boyfriend? How long have you been together? Whatever, just to get a conversation going. It's a staple of comedy club shows uh, to open the show and make the audience comfortable in this very weird dynamic of shut up and listen to the stranger. And right. I'm, I think most comics, when they start out, are scared to death of crowd work because you don't know if you're going to think of something funny when you ask somebody a question, but you get good at it and MCs do. It. And I host a lot of shows. And just an example, last week I did four shows. I was in Maryland, Virginia. And I think the first three nights emceeing the shows, opening the shows, there's no crowd work. And the fourth night I'm like, I guess I'm going to, I feel like doing crowd work tonight. And I started talking to the audience and there was just a lot of humor from asking people, you know, where are you from? Is anybody here from New York? And people in the front applauded. I said, where are you from in New York? And they said, Connecticut. <laughs> and I'm like, you suck at geography. Right. Connecticut is not part of New York. <laughs> and they weren't even from near New York in Connecticut. They were like halfway in, away from the state. So, you know, and I started, but there were New Yorkers in the crowd. So I talked about, you know, New York and where they were from and why they moved, you know, down south. And so- sure. I like crowd work. It's not something I want to make my whole career, but I like did, doing it. Did you have any other experience in entertainment before you started doing stand-up? Uh, other than writing jokes for late night TV, zero. I was in the. I never thought I wanted to do anything in entertainment. I was in the fifth grade play. I had three lines. I don't remember what the play was, but I had three lines and I got shot. And, nice. And yeah. And after that, for weeks, people were coming up to me thinking it was funny to say, "Hey, I thought you were dead." And I'm like, I am never getting on stage again. Right. And it took 30 years before I got on stage again. 
Right. I mean, you hear a lot of people that that have you know a, a theater background or no, yeah, or no, no. There's like yeah, there's there's singers and dancers and actors. There's people who acted and discovered they were funny and started doing stand up. No, no, sure. never did that. Never had any interest. I'm probably the only comedian who doesn't want a sitcom. <laughs> nice. Neither do I. I was on the radio though, and um, that's kind of I was on a, a three hour radio show, um, and that's that's kind of my progression um through through there and then you know to this and and what stand-up i still do um what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on a stage wow um worst thing that's ever happened to me on a stage you know i've not had i've not had any violence i've not had hecklers i couldn't deal with i've not had anybody run up to the stage i've not had anybody throw anything um i can tell you a crazy story though okay uh, so we're, we're, I shot a TV special, and it's it's on Amazon. It's the Ivy League of Comedy live from the Emelin Theater. And okay. uh, I'm emceeing the show, and, like, four of the comics have gone off out of six. And I'm literally just about to go, relieve, you know, relieve the, the comic who's on stage and introduce the next comic. And the person from the theater is holding the curtain open for me as the person says, thank you, and... The next comic is supposed to come come out and somebody from the theater one of the, the backstage people runs up and says um while he's got food poisoning he can't go on <laughs> and like i'm the only one there right and i said and karen was the other comedian i think who was supposed to go before we closed the show and i said find karen not knowing if she's in the building because karen likes to wander outside and look for starbucks before before i said <laughs> So I don't know if she's like anywhere in the building because she's not expecting to go on for 20 more minutes. Right. So I, I go out on stage and I start talking to the audience and I do about, you know, 30 seconds or a minute worth of material. And I don't know if Karen is there, but we're filming this for TV. I can't waste like 10 minutes. We have a schedule to keep. Um, and it's the first show. We have another show to do after we, we've got a schedule. We've got a second audience ready to come in. So I so then I, I just say, ladies and gentlemen, Karen Burgreen, and they applaud. I don't know if she's on the other side of the curtain, but then she steps out and everything was fine. And then it turned out Wally, like 20 minutes later, was better. And the thing that bugged me most was we did not have a camera backstage to catch that. Oh. Because during the during before the show, we had a camera backstage filming the comedians hanging out backstage, and that's part sure. of what's in the show. But all the cameras when we were doing the show we're out filming the show. We didn't have any cameras right. backstage. And I thought that would have made great television. So for our next, next time I do this, we're keeping a camera following the comedians backstage just in case something happens. Is there a specific reason you named it the Ivy League of uh, Comedy? Well, it started out, when I started in comedy, I was trying to solicit corporate events. Okay. And I wanted a name for my organization that sounded upscale. Okay. And I went to an Ivy League school and I thought, let me call it Ivy League Comedy. And that's what I did. It was called Ivy League Comedy. I wanted it to sound, you know, more intelligent. And then one day we showed up at a theater and the marquee said the Ivy League of Comedy. And then my first thought was, oh, they got our name wrong. And my second thought was, that's a better name. Right. So I changed the name. Okay. Uh, how, how do you get how do you get a special on Amazon? Is that, that something they contact you about? Do you contact them? Do you have to, you know, no, I sell it? I actually shot it on spec and it took a while to get it edited, but luckily 
that luckily for us, there was a pandemic. And uh, sure. so we knocked on a lot of doors. I don't want to piss off Amazon too much, but they were not my first choice. I would have okay. preferred Netflix or HBO or Showtime. Sure. And, and they all said no. And I'm like, well, Amazon works. So I sent it to Amazon. Okay. I didn't know if it worked like uh, like anybody could sell anything on like the Amazon site or anything like that. I don't know. I just know we sent it to them and they put it up and people watch it. That's cool. What uh, What's brainchampagne.com all about? Uh, I just needed a URL when I started in comedy. I started in 2003 and the internet was still relatively new then. Mm -hmm. And most working comics had a website and their website was their first and last name.com. Sure. And most new comics did not have websites. And I thought I'm going to need one eventually. The thing is a URL at the time cost $50 a year. And my first name is spelled S H A U N. My middle name, which is what I go by is E L I people would. So if I got Sean, people would not find me because they'd misspell it. So I would have to buy, you know, six different permutations of how to spell my first and last name for people to find me. And that would be 300 bucks a year. And plus people will see a comedian and leave the theater or comedy club and not remember their name. So I wanted something memorable. And I thought I like champagne and comedy is sort of like champagne for the brain, brain champagne rhymes. I'll try brain champagne and people remember it. So my website is brainchampagne.com. Do you miss your nine to five job? No, I don't miss commuting. I don't miss an alarm clock. I don't miss a boss. I would like, there's no HR department in comedy. There's nobody to right. like plan your next move. There's right. nobody to fight your fights for you or, you know, not take your side against the company. I do miss subsidized health insurance and a 401k plan. <laughs> um, and I, I left this lastly because it it might get lengthy, um, but maybe not. It could be a short answer. No. What What are your thoughts? <laughs> that was my short answer. Yeah. No. Um, what are your thoughts or do you have any thoughts? I'm, I ask this of every comedian that I interview is what are your thoughts on cancel culture? Um. I think, I don't know whether I'd call it cancel culture, but some people would say that's just being responsible for your words and actions. I don't know that you should automatically boycott somebody just because other people tell you to, but if you're an asshole and people stop buying your product because you're an asshole, that's on you. Sure. So there are people who say and do bad things and they, if the people they offend don't want to associate with them anymore, that's fine. I think that, you know, if you don't like a company that because they, they sponsor uh, something that you think is awful, don't buy their product. If you think a comedian isn't funny anymore because he said something you found offensive and you don't go to their shows anymore, that's fine. If you're telling everybody nobody should watch this comedian because he or she said this bad thing, let people decide for themselves. I mean, sure. The question is, for example, Bill Cosby, who was a horrible, horrible person who did some monstrously horrible things. Um, I don't know that he's going to ever, well, he probably is too old and sick anyway, but he's probably never going to go on tour. The question is, should they still show the Cosby show on television? Well, if people are entertained by it, I don't see a problem with that. He's not, you know, raping people on the show. Sure. Or, or drugging them. Right. Right. Um, what about those that like, you know, 
put something on Facebook or Twitter 10 years ago and when they were 17 and now they're 27 and they're a famous actor, a famous comic, you know, and, um, and people are coming after them for something they said about 10 years ago. Uh, well, I'm sure glad that we didn't have Facebook or Twitter when I was 17. Me too. Or cameras on phones right. specifically. Right. Uh, I would say this, like Kevin Hart lost hosting the Academy Awards because he said something right. derogatory about homosexuals like 10 years earlier. The question is, do they stand by it or do they like, you know what? I was wrong and I'm sorry I said it and I apologize and I wish I could make it up to people or what can I do to make it up to people? Because we've all said and done dumb things. I mean, not Cosby level dumb things, but we've all said and done dumb things in our youth or even like, you know, five minutes ago. But the question is, do they stand by it or not? I mean, if you were racist 10 years ago and you realize the error of your ways, and you're like, I was wrong and I've learned. That's very different from, well, I stand by what I said. Right, right. Well, I was a vegetarian 10 years ago and now I've seen the error of my ways. So I, I eat steak now. Um, where can they find you other than brainchampagne.com? Uh, brainchampagne.com has my schedule on it. It's got videos of me on stage. It's got 50,000 words worth of jokes. So a lot of the jokes I wrote for late night TV are on my website, and some of them are horribly dated, but maybe they're still funny. And to give you an idea what 50,000 words is, that's about half the length of a novel. So that's a lot of jokes. But I'll be in, I mean, I don't know when you're going to air this, but... Uh, Actually, it goes uh, tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, if people are watching it tomorrow or this week, I'll be in Stowe, Vermont on Saturday. And my schedule is on my website, brainchampagne.com. Or... You want to contact me if you've got a corporate event or a charity fundraiser or a private party where you can afford to have me travel to where you are if you're not in New York. You know, give me a call, send me a text, send me an email, write me a letter and say, hey, Sean, I want to talk to you about a show. That's cool. Um, so it's brainchampagne.com. Uh, his name is Sean Eli. Give him a call. Uh, set him up for a corporate event. Uh, and, and by the way, we're big in Vermont. So, um, with the geolocation services that we pay a lot of money for, um, here at unfiltered studios, but, but I want to thank you for coming on. I, I, I know I promised you in between 45 minutes and an hour. Um, I, I thank you very much for coming on. Do you have anything, uh, any parting thoughts for our guests or our listeners? Yes. Yeah, spend lots of money on comedy shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, and go out and, more fun. Yeah. And just support local live entertainment. Yeah. So, all right, Sean. Well, I appreciate you uh, you coming on, sir. And uh, and I'll, I hope to talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thanks, sir. Thanks. All right. There he goes. That's uh, Sean Eli, and uh, we want to thank him for coming on. We will um, get uh, put everything in the show notes um, where to contact him, all that, and uh, you can go to brainchampagne.com and you can see everywhere that he is going to be. A couple house cleaning items here. Uh, A lot of fun going on here at Unfiltered Studios. Um, We do have uh, other shows that are part of the family. Uh, Finding Your Way comes out Thursday, and that's with the Beebs. We also have Pedals of Support, and that's a a very, very, very popular and very uh, successful podcast. And uh, that's on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, here at Unfiltered Studios, as well as the Stupid History Minute, which comes out every day. It's two minutes. There's no reason not 
to listen to it. It's the Stupid History Minute. And uh, a, new, a brand new show started this week called Nailed It with St. Joe. Uh, that comes out on Mondays, and that's kind of like a, a hodgepodge of whatever he's got going on, uh, but it's quite inter- entertaining. So go ahead and, and check those out. Uh, again, I want to thank my guest, Sean Eli, for joining us so far. Sean, uh, my name is The Kev, and we will catch you guys next week. The opinions on this podcast may strike some listeners as vulgar, offensive, or worst of all, serious. Serious. Please adjust your expectations and interpretations accordingly. In other words, lighten the f*** up. For all other concerns, complaints, and court documents, please direct those towards the nearest brick wall. Thank you for listening. This has been an Unfiltered Studios production. For more information, please visit us at unfpod.com.